0: Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 14 The resurrection story includes as its entree, so to speak, as its prelude, the empty tomb story and insists on the empty tomb. And Jesus says, Why are you wailing? And don't cling to me. At the empty tomb In the story. So, I want to reflect for the next while on what that means. Anthropologically, ritual mourning has sacrificial efficacy, as I tried to point out when we talked about the Lazarus story. Ritual mourning turns death, even a natural or accidental death, into a cathartic experience. It has the effect, in other words, it exploits a natural or accidental or whatever kind of death for ritual purposes, for the generation of a cathartic experience. It has the effect of invoking the psychodynamics of ritual sacrifice, even though none has taken place, but it invokes them ritually, and thereby it helps reconvene the culture along sacrificial lines, and, and reorient the psychology of the wailer or ritual lamenter along those same sacrificial lines. So, and the tomb is at the center of this ritual, either physically or or symbolically. Here's what Gerard says. I'm taking this out of context, but I can only say to you that it's in the context of a of an analysis that's persuasive. I'm, but I'm just giving you the, 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 the uh, summation, conclusion of the analysis. Culture always develops as a tomb. The tomb is nothing but the first human monument to be raised over the surrogate victim, the first, most elemental, and fundamental matrix of meaning. There is no culture without a tomb and no tomb without a culture. In the end, the tomb is the first and only cultural symbol. End quote. Well what does it if that's true then the fact that we have a, a a New Testament in which the empty tomb is 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 conspicuous is very interesting anthropologically in terms of what is being revealed here the insistence on the empty tomb if there is no tomb then there is no place to go to regenerate culture, conventional culture, if the tomb is as central as Girard argues it is in cultural life, symbolically speaking, or an- even anthropologically speaking. Can we live... If we, if we try to live in the light of the resurrection, we must live without uh, having a tomb at the center of our, of our cultural lives. Can we do so? Can we live without periodically having to invoke or reinvoke the primitive sacred, an invocation that so often happens at the site of the tomb, literally or symbolically? Jesus in Luke's Gospel says, for instance, to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of prophets whom your fathers killed, and thereby you incur their guilt. They kill them, and you build their tomb." In other words, killing and building of the tomb are really part and parcel of the same phenomenon. Even though those who built the tombs in the Luke, he's talking about those who built the tombs as a way of saying they were better than their fathers. Their fathers did these nasty deeds and they were saying, we don't do that. We honor these people that our fathers killed. And Jesus said, when you build their tombs, regardless of what motive you have and how you're trying to exonerate yourself, you're proving that you are in complicity with the murderer." Another indication, anthropologically and structurally, another indication that the Gospels are, as Jesus says to Peter at the end of the resurrection story, are taking us where we would rather not go. So what I'd like to do now is talk about what it means to live without a tomb and uh, how we have not been able to do that very well and what the result is. And these stories, all three of them represent something of a, they represent the grotesque, even though all three of them are historically accurate. Uh, they're grotesque in the sense, and I, I invoke uh, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor said, "Our time is so is so befuddled and lost that unless you, unless you, uh, depict its lostness in the most grotesque terms, nobody will recognize it. If you write a story about how absurd it is, most people are so." accommodated to the absurdity they won't get it so you have to write a story about how absurd it is in the most grotesque way and then they begin to to get it well I offer in that in the spirit of that I offer these stories first is the crusades in the 11th century uh, the the west launched crusades against the against the Islamic uh, uh, hegemony in in Palestine and uh, the holy land and uh, at the Council of Clermont, Urban II invoked, uh, preached. Uh, the, the, this hermit called Hermit Peter had been traveling around preaching the necessity for some campaign against the infidel and infidels in the Holy City, and uh, and then finally, at the proper moment, uh, Urban II preached this, the Crusade, and uh, it was launched. And uh, I want to read t- to you from uh, one account of that. There are several accounts, and the ones I've read are similar. There's certain facets of it that are historically clear, clearly happened because they're so well documented in all the accounts. Uh, But here's one account that I have in my notes which I like. Issuing from the church in his full canonicals, surrounded by his cardinals and bishops in all the splendor of Romanish ecclesiastical costume, the Pope stood before the populace on a high scaffolding, erected for the occasion and covered with scarlet cloth. A brilliant array of bishops and cardinals surrounded him, and among them, humbler in rank but more important in the world's eye, was Hermit Peter, the monk who had preached the crusade. As the Pope lifted up his hands to ensure attention, every voice immediately became still. He began by detailing the miseries endured by their brethren in the Holy Land. Now, a few weeks ago I talked about the paraclete casting out the paraclete. Uh, The Gospel talks about Satan casting out Satan, but there is a phenomenon called, I think, which is the paraclete casting out paraclete, which is just the flip side of Satan casting out Satan. And that is to defend the victims in such a way that one becomes a victimizer. That is to say, to begin to talk about the plight of these victims and the heinous crimes of the victimizers and thereby to whip up an appetite for, for raining violence down on the victimizers and becoming thereby their moral successors. And you, here you have exactly that. What, what's remarkable about these stories that have the empty tomb at their center is that they, they tend to be perfect replicas, perfect anthropological analogs for the whole human problem, the whole uh, historical and anthropological problem. So he begins by talking about these miseries endured by the brethren in the Holy Land. Still quoting, how Christian wives and daughters were defiled by pagan lust, how the altars of the true God were desecrated, the relics of the saints trodden underfoot, you, all of which was very likely happening, although uh, the the description of how it was happening was bred in the, more in the minds of the, uh, of the people in Europe than it was from any serious... Uh, reporting of the facts from the Middle East and then the Pope goes on you continued the eloquent pontiff I call upon you to wipe off these impurities from the face of the earth the sepulcher of Christ is possessed by the heathen the sacred places are dishonored by their vileness end quote the sepulcher of Christ is, is possessed by heathens and our sacred shrines are dishonored the invocation of the sacred and the tomb in the same sentence and when i think of this i always think of somebody in the back row had put this hand up and said but the tomb is empty you know <laughs> what might have happened well i tell you what might have happened what might have happened is that we might not have had a europe we might not have had a europe Because it's very difficult to imagine Europe as we know it today becoming what it became had it not uh, had this collective sacrificial ritual we call the Crusades to unite it. Now, I don't say that because I think they were a good thing. I don't. I say that because history is a pretty bumpy road and it's very easy for us to look back on people living in the 11th century and wag our heads or our fingers and say, well too bad they were morally inferior to us. They weren't. They were living almost a thousand years earlier into the Paraclete's invasion of the planet Earth. And we now who are products of an extra thousand years of the Paraclete's work on the human uh, social and psychological order, we can see things they simply could not see. The Crusades represent the most conspicuous and glaring instance of Christian sacred violence the one that whatever its physical scope is symbolically central and paradigmatic for all Christian sacred violence and at the heart of it was the determination to reclaim and re-enshrine the tomb of Christ so Now, here's where it gets very interesting. The Pope goes on. Go then, he added, in expiation of your sins. And at this, the enthusiasm was no longer to be restrained, says this uh, historian. Go then in expiation of your sins. Please keep that in mind towards the end of today's session when we come to the link between the resurrection and forgiveness because the kind of history that was created as a result of the the, uh, exhortations of Urban II is the kind of history that is created by unforgiven people. And if we'd like to have some other kind of history emerge on this planet, we'd better get serious about the business of forgiveness. Okay, so, go then, he said, in expiation of your sins. The enthusiasm was no longer to be restrained, and loud shouts interrupted the speaker. The people exclaiming, "As if one, with one voice, as if with one voice. "J labu, la! Vous, Dieu la God wants it, God wants it. as with one voice. With great presence of mind, this is the, this is the unanimous response, you see. With great presence of mind, urban took advantage of the outburst. And as soon as silence was obtained, he continued, quote, Dear brethren, today is shown forth in you that which the Lord has said by his evangelist. When two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them to bless them. End quote. The Pope continues If the Lord God had not been in your souls, you would not have pronounced the same words, or rather, God himself pronounced them by your lips, for it was he that put them in your heart. Be they then your war cry in combat, for those words came forth from God. Let the army... By the way, just... Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. That's the recipe for the primitive sacred. The voice of the people uh, in, that, in that sort of unanimous cry is the voice of God. It's the primitive sacred in action. Then the Pope continues, Let the army of the Lord, when it rushes upon its enemies, shout but that one cry, Dieu la God wants it. And let him who is ready to begin his march place the holy emblem, which is the cross, on his shoulder, in memory of that precept of our Savior, quote, He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What has happened, of course, is that the is that the empty tomb has been turned into a shrine, a a sacred shrine, and the center of a cause that will unleash sacred violence against the enemies, the so-called enemies of Christ. The preeminent biblical scholar, John L. McKenzie, in a book he wrote after retiring from the, the guild of biblical scholars, marvelous scathing wonderful faithful book he says we all want to give up war but we don't want to give up the fruits of war and really that goes to this question of european civilization and the role of the crusades in in engendering in the first instance the spirit that became europe and at the very very beginning of the story of the Crusades, and the same uh, by the same historian, you have the following: At the Council of Clermont, Urban II again solemnly proclaimed a truce. So strong was the religious feeling that everyone hastened to obey. The religious feeling generated by the campaign, the crusading campaign, the crusading zeal. So suddenly there was a truce in Europe, peace made in Europe, because the violence was was organized and directed outside of Europe, which is exactly what the scapegoating ritual does for society. And then the historian goes on, All minor passions disappeared before the grand passion of crusading. That is a recipe for the the sacrificial scenario. All minor passions disappear before the grand passion of sacrifice. Here the word is crusading. And then he goes on, the feudal chiefs ceased to oppress, the robber to plunder, the people to complain, but one idea was in, in all hearts and there seemed to be no room for any other. That is precisely the sacrificial scenario. And it gave rise to Europe and we are the beneficiaries, and I mean that very seriously, the beneficiaries of Europe. I, know, I do not mean it as a way to justify that, uh, but as a way to keep us from being sanctimonious. Now I want to take up two little stories retold by Elias Canetti in his interesting book, Crowds in Power. I I used a story or two from this book back maybe when we were doing the uh, Raising of Lazarus story. Canetti is a Nobel laureate who wrote this book or collected these anthropological accounts and reflected upon them. And he tells two stories from the 19th century, in Jerusalem, two eyewitness accounts of religious ceremonies that took place at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, one in 1834 and one in 1853. And I want to quote from the accounts. Both of these were eyewitness accounts written by Englishmen who happened to be visiting uh, the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher during Holy Week. And both took place as part of the Greek celebration, Greek Orthodox celebration of Easter, which culminates in a ceremony or ritual of holy fire on Easter Eve. And this is a ceremony in which, the, as you may know, the, the sepulcher of Christ is in the middle of this church, It's a self-contained little place in the middle of this church. And on Easter Eve at a certain moment, there's a hole in the wall of the sepulchre and fire uh, is made to come out from that wall and everybody rushes over to light their candles from it. And this is called the uh, fire coming out of, quote, the grave of the Redeemer. So, again, sort of missing the fact that there is an empty tomb. Now, you have to... Let me uh, make confession I've never been to the Church of the Sepulcher. If I were ever to go there, I'd probably never get out. I probably would love it so much, I would just stay there and, you know, get on my knees until they were raw or something. I mean, I, those are places I like. I have a hard time getting out of places like that. So I'm not trying to do some, uh, some uh, reductionist, r- rational thing about it, but I think it's important for us to realize uh, what's at stake with the Christian Revelation, and if we have to uh, raise some serious questions about our uh, sacrificial misinterpretations of things. Uh, so so be it. I want to start with the second of these stories and then go back to the first. The, f- the second one took place in 1853, and it was witnessed by an Englishman whose name is Stanley, who later became dean of Westminster. And here's what he says. Uh, he says, first of all, that the... the, uh, the a great crowd came in and pressed around the sepulchre. And there. so you have to imagine a kind of mandala with the sepulchre in the middle and then a great crowd crushing around that and then a line of Turkish soldiers and then another line of Turkish soldiers and then a great crowd on the outside there. And in between the two lines of Turkish soldiers was a, was a procession route. So that uh, because the crowds were so big and so pressing the authorities had to put soldiers in there to keep this to, first of all to keep it from becoming uh, the kind of catastrophe that it sometimes became and did become in these stories and secondly to make it possible for the for the ritual to take place the ri- the procession to take place but as the ritual begins there's relative calm although people have been there in the orthodox tradition for you know all night in uh, ritual preparation for um, the fire shooting from, from, from Good Friday, by the way. So uh, Stanley says this, quote, It is about noon that the circular lane is suddenly broken through by a tangled group rushing violently around till they are caught by one of the Turkish soldiers. It seems to be the belief of Arab Greeks that unless they run around the sepulcher a certain number of times, the fire will not come. Now, you see, there's a kind of reversion to the primitive sacred uh, mindset in this whole thing. Accordingly, the night before and from this time forward for two hours, a succession of mad gambles takes place around and around the sepulcher. Tangled masses of 20, 30, 50 men start in a run, catch hold of each other, lift one of themselves on their shoulders and rush on with him, until he leaps off and someone else succeeds, some of them dressed in sheepskins, some almost naked. Now, this is virtually spontaneous, showing how much a part of the, of the mimetic phenomenon the sacrificial scenario is. It's not something that we learn from. Well, we do, though. It's, it's, not, it's in us but it's also something we pick up. The next sentence in this account says, um, One is usually preceding the rest as a Fugelmann clapping his hands to which they respond in like manner. You know the German word Fugelman, which here is uh, in English fugelmann, uh means the winged man, but the Fugelmann is one who... Uh, you know, like in these aerobic exercises, the sort of figure who stands up and does the little thing, and everybody goes along. That's the Fugelman. The Fugelman is the one on whom everybody takes their mimetic, from whom everybody takes their mimetic cue. And therefore, it's how you, it's how you standardize rituals when you don't have your rubrics, when you don't have uh, a program. You see. And so the Fugelman comes along and does things in a more flamboyant way and therefore more fascinating way than everybody else and everybody follows along. So this is spontaneous in the sense that nobody choreographs it, but still in all, there is this Fugelmann who, pro- by the way, is probably not a designated figure in the ritual. He simply is the one who's the most flamboyant. He's the one that's most caught up in this thing and whose gestures and conviction are such that everybody finds themselves following along. And so it says he's clapping and running around and doing all kinds of things to which everybody responds in like manner, adding also, the, uh, Stanley goes on, adding also wild howls of which the chief burden is, quote, this is the tomb of Jesus Christ. God save the Sultan. Jesus Christ has redeemed us, which is an interesting combination of things and then Stanley goes on what begins in the less well let me just stop notice the centrality of the tomb this is the tomb of Jesus Christ which is exactly what everybody after the crucifixion was ready to go declare until they found it was empty why are you wailing don't cling to me meet me in Galilee you see, anything but get out of the cemetery quick. Then at this moment, suddenly a procession emerges and begins to move around the circle. And Stanley says, from this moment, the excitement, which has before been confined to the runners and dancers, becomes universal. Now, it's total frenzy. It's no longer the choir You see, so to speak. It's everybody. The crisis of the day, Stanley says, is now approaching. The presence of the Turks is believed to prevent the descent of the fire. And it is at this point that the Turks are driven or consent to be driven out of the church. The need to expel the infidel in order to begin the sacred ritual. You see this? the the ritual is reaching its crescendo its climax the ritual frenzy is reaching its climax it's the most dangerous part of of a of a ritual because it's now you have the problem it might spill over and cease to be a ritual reenactment of a sacrificial crisis and become an actual sacrificial crisis and there's innumerable stories in the scriptures which Uh, uh, warn about this moment the whole book of Leviticus is written you could say and this is overstating it you could say the book of Leviticus is an elaborate handbook on how to reach this catharsis without going over so that you ritually reenact the sacrificial scenario but you but you don't reproduce it in your society so here we are at the critical moment here's what Kennedy says about what Stanley has just described, namely this sort of quasi-ritual of expelling the Turkish soldiers. He says, The Turks move of their own accord towards the exit, but the pilgrims press after them as though they were driving them out. And the church is suddenly full of the tumult as of fighting and victory. Before the fire actually appears, it must be fought for. So then Stanley says, in the midst of this frenzy, in one small but compact band, the Bishop of Petra, who is on this occasion the Bishop of Fire, the representative of the patriarch, is hurried into the chapel of the sepulcher and the door is closed behind him. The whole church is now one heaving sea of heads and resounds with an uproar because the bishop has gone into the sepulcher and now the flame will come out at any moment. See, and it's just frenzied. And Stanley says, as far as the eye can reach, hundreds of bare arms are stretched out like branches of a leafless forest, quivering in some violent tempest. And that's a marvelous metaphor for the, for the mimetic contagion. At last the moment comes. A bright flame, as of burning wood, appears inside the little hole in the sepulchre. A light, now notice this, a light as every educated Greek knows and acknowledges, kindled by the bishop within. You see, the bishop is in there with a Zippo lighter getting this thing going. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it, or every educated Greek knows it. And then the next phrase is, the light as every pilgrim believes of the descent of God himself upon the holy tomb. So you have this epistemological conundrum. We know that the bishop is in there trying to get this thing going and we know that this is God visiting the holy tomb. And which knowledge do you think will predominate in the the mimetic situation that Stanley has just described? In other words, just how helpful do you think rationality is going to be in getting us out of the mess we're in. And it's clear it, its clear from a lot of sources, but it's perfectly clear here that it's going to be very little help. Because the rational element simply is decommissioned in the presence of the primitive sacred. And the primitive sacred is just another way of talking about the mob completely in, in the grip of a mimetic mem- enthrallment. So, Stanley says, any distinct feature or incident is lost in the universal world of, of excitement. Now, he says, it is now that the bishop or patriarch is carried out of the chapel in triumph on the, so- on the shoulders of the people in a fainting state to give the impression that he is overcome by the glory of the Almighty from whose immediate presence he is believed to have come. Now just notice this, and forget the rationale behind it. At this moment of frenzy when the flames fill the church, the bishop is brought out, but in a fainting state. That is to say, he's fallen, and he's carried as fallen. Because he has seen the glory of God, and one cannot see the glory of God and live. Well, there's something incredibly... Now, the Christian interpretation won't allow this to be sacrificial explicitly, but there's something very reminiscent of the sacrificial uh, denouement in the very ritual itself. And then Stanley says, not the least extraordinary part of the spectacle is the rapid and total subsidence of a frenzy that had been so intense. End of the story. Well, we, I don't, we can't take time to uh, to tease out all the implications because we have another one that has even more of them. But amazing to me that it takes place at the Chapel of the Sepulchre. And we get a, a, as I said several times already, we get a recapitulation of the whole anthropological dilemma. The earlier event, 1834 event, is perhaps even more explicit. It became more violent. Uh, it was witnessed by an Englishman whose name is Robert Curzon. And he says there were many thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem, and they had met, most of them had come for this ritual of the sacred fire. And there was an, a Good Friday ritual, an all-night vigil, and so on. Then there was the arrival of the Turkish governor and the dignitaries, And then Corzon describes his eyewitness uh, observations. Quote, The people by this time had become furious. They were worn out with standing in such a crowd all night, and as the time approached for the exhibition of the Holy Fire, they could not contain themselves for joy. Now notice the oxymoron in that sentence. They were furious, and they could not contain themselves for joy. Now, this is, this is precisely what the primitive sacred does. It's the mysterium conjunctionis in this strange way. It's always an oxymoron. It's the world in which, the, in which uh, uh, madness and ecstasy, in which violence becomes ecstatic, madness becomes ecstatic, the difference between fury and joy, vanishes Uh, and all other differences vanish the difference between pleasure and pain between life and death between male and female vanish in this frenzy at the heart of this frenzy and you have a hint of it right there in in uh, Corazon first sentence then he goes on to say their excitement increased until about one o'clock a magnificent procession moved out of the greek chapel it conducted the patriarch three times around the tomb, after which he came off. He took off his robes of cloth of silver and went into the sepulcher, the door of which was then closed, just, just as the other ritual. The agitation of the pilgrims was now extreme. They screamed aloud, and the dense mass of people shook to and fro like a field of corn in the wind. Now, 20 years later... Stanley said, at this exact moment, Stanley described it as quivering like some vi- as if in some violent tempest. All arms quivering as if in some violent tempest. And, t- and 20 years earlier, Corazon says, it was like a field of corn in the wind. What an incredible uh, juxtaposition of these totally similar ideas of, of mimetic contagion. And then he goes on, a furious battle commenced immediately once the fire came out. Everyone being so eager to obtain the holy light that one man put out the candle of his neighbor in trying to light his own. And now you have a glimpse of modernity. Now it becomes, it becomes the complete crisis. It borders on the complete crisis of all against all the utter undifferentiation of all against all. And then you get this charming, wonderful thing by uh, Corzon. It's so touching. <laughs> he says, this was the whole ceremony. No sermon, no prayers, <laughs> nothing except a little chanting during processions. He's I can't figure it out. <laughs> he thought he knew what religion was. You know, if... Sitting here, we can we can figure Bosnia out easily. you go over there, and if you if you don't watch it, you'll end up with an automatic weapon in your hand. And this guy has been going to church. He thinks that's what religion is. I don't think Christianity is a religion in the anthropological sense. I think it's a faith. I think it's the I think it's the the religious. I think it's the religious undermining of uh, of archaic religion. But the point is, you see it right here. He thinks he's had the religious. He thinks he knows about religion because he's been to Christian worship services, and now he sees this thing going on. And he says, "What's amazing is that there were no sermons and no prayers." <laughs> As a matter of fact, I sympathize with him. But I think it's it's also charming. And he says, "So let me go back to Corson." He says, "This was the whole ceremony: no sermon, no prayers." nothing except a little chanting during the processions. The people in their frenzy put bunches of lighted tapers to their faces, hands, and breasts to purify themselves from their sins. Now we come back to the role of the primitive sacred in purifying ourselves of sin. And the fact that in Jesus' ministry, the forgiveness, the... uh, uh, leading people to the experience of forgiveness was a central part of his ministry. So there is a total sacrificial crisis in the chapel and uh, Corzon says, in a short time, the smoke of the candles obscured everything in the place, which is a marvelous metaphor for the epistemological effect of the ritual on those There. Okay, now we come to the same moment in this story that we came to in the other one, that is to say the moment where you can't tell whether this ritual is a ritual reenactment of a sacrificial crisis or a sacrificial crisis itself. And, of course, it becomes the latter. Uh, but it's very interesting uh, to watch it happen. And Corzon says this, The people who were quite panic-struck continued to press forward, and everyone was doing his utmost to escape, because there's just panic now. The guards outside, frightened at the rush from within, thought that the Christians wished to attack them, and the confusion soon grew into a battle. The soldiers with their bayonets killed numbers of of fainting wretches, and the walls were splattered with blood and the brains of men who had been felled like oxen with the butt ends of the soldiers' muskets. So desperate and savage did the fight become that even the panic struck and frightened the pilgrims appeared at last to have been more intent upon the destruction of each other than desirous to save themselves. Now, savor that for a second. More intent upon the destruction of each other than desirous to save themselves. That is the symptom of of the complete madness at the heart of the thing. More intent upon the destruction of each other than desirous to save themselves. And look around the world today and see where you see that going on. Caiaphas said, it's better that one should die than that this should happen. It's better to perform a successful sacrifice and create social harmony on the basis of that than that we should let this happen. And he was right. Except that it only worked as long as we felt that the sacrifice was religiously and morally Inevitable, and once the biblical revelation has made us aware of the arbitrariness and moral insubstantiality of the sacrificial routine, we can't avail ourselves of it anymore, less and less and less. And so we have to figure out some other way to keep this from happening, because the sacrificial uh, solution kept this from happening, and once it's gone what's going to keep it from happening and that's what people are asking now in Bosnia and South Africa and Northern Ireland and so on and so forth and finally Curzon says I stood up for a minute among the press of people held up on the uncomfortable footing of the dead bodies by the dense crowd of uh, dense crowd who were squeezed together in this narrow part of the church we all stood still for a short time when of a sudden the crowd swayed a cry arose The crowd opened and I found myself standing in the center of a line of men with another line opposite me, all pale and ghastly with torn and bloody clothes. And there we stood glaring at each other. But in a moment, a sudden impulse seized upon us with a shriek that echoed in the long aisles of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The two adverse lines dashed at each other and I was soon engaged in tearing and wrestling with a thin, half naked man whose legs were smeared with blood. Now that is amazing. At this point, the Turks have gone. There's nobody in, there's no fundamental social distinction left inside the chapel. And suddenly, in the midst of this absolute frenzy, there is a kind of bifurcation that takes place spontaneously. And suddenly, these two groups of people are staring at each other. They have nothing to distinguish them. The the one group has nothing in common with itself that it doesn't have in common with the people opposite. Nevertheless, out of a out of a kind of the spontaneous uh, generation of this social phenomenon is such that they leer at one another for a moment, and as somebody lets out a shriek, and they start to kill one another. Many rituals begin with mock battles. Clearly this is so because these rituals are the ritual reenactment of precisely the kind of social breakdown, the early stages of, of which involved fighting between two socially distinct cultural subgroups. The crisis that followed and that led to the violence, the violence which ritual strives to reenact without recreating involved the gradual evaporation of social distinction, under the intense mimetic pressure of violence. What begins as a battle of us against them becomes the pandemonium of violence of all against all. Finally, this crisis is resolved when the same mimetic influences that gave rise to the pandemonium transform the all against all of the crisis into an all against one of the scapegoating violence. Here in this ritual described by Curzon we have a fascinating and illuminating anomaly. At the height of the crisis, there is a socially spontaneous attempt to turn the all-against-all of the crisis into an us-against-them of ordinary cultural life. And so, I mean, I think it's absolutely incredible that this happens in a completely spontaneous way. And, of course, it degenerates into all-against-all very quickly but you almost see the social organism trying to pull itself out of its own madness by at least creating one differentiation. Okay, finally, here's what Canetti says at the end of it all. The church of the sepulcher has become a battlefield. The resurrection has become its contrary. Canetti says the resurrection has become its opposite. I would say the resurrection has become the apocalypse. The kind of violence occurred in this story the kind of total social breakdown that occurred in this story is precisely the kind of violence that the sacrificial system exists to ward off when Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed this is what he's talking about in other words the sacrificial system is a way of economizing violence and, and draining it away towards a limited number of victims and preventing this kind of catastrophe. Now, if Christianity, if the Christian revelation makes the sacrificial solution to social problems impossible, it, it uh, makes this kind of scenario inevitable unless we find another way of convening our social lives of organizing our psychological lives and of experiencing forgiveness the parable of this story at at the heart of this story is this moment when the two the, the two lines of men form it's as though the social organism is trying to generate some kind of of distinction upon which it can then organize the what the the social event so that it doesn't become totally chaotic and it can't. It can't do it. And I think we live in a world where that is increasingly impossible and we can't socially differentiate anymore. The Gospels have already told us that none of the social differentiations have any ultimate meaning and the, and the crucifixion has revealed the whole sacrificial scenario. So, if we can't create those social differentiations, it's either all against all or we become brothers and sisters. And there's simply no choice. Or as Gerard puts it, it's either the kingdom or the apocalypse. And these stories, I think, are are paradigms for the kind of world towards which we're drifting. And they, interestingly enough, say they're stories that speak of this crisis in terms of the tomb at the center, and I think it's tremendously significant. Okay, so now back to the resurrection story, or more specifically to the appearance story in John's Gospel in the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. I'm not going to do much with the story of doubting Thomas, you know, but it's important here in this story, and it plays a very central role in the story of doubting Thomas, the the, the hands and the side. In late 1st century particularly for this community there is the the drift towards gnosticism or one of the one of the versions of gnosticism or some sort of quasi gnostic uh, uh sect in the late 1st century was the docetist <coughs> from a greek word which means to seem and the docetists were those who f- said that he jesus just seemed to be human and he dissip- the real christ you see uh, was just it was just a shadow play, and he was sort of had this little body, and then he zipped out of it before the crucifixion, so that he didn't have to go through that terrible thing. So really and truly, what Tom- and so it, when Jesus appears to Thomas, he says, "Here, put your hands in here, put your fingers in here, and in my side." You see, it's a way of saying, "No, no, no." The crucifixion happened. Jesus suffered death at the hands of the mob and the authorities. So in a way. The disbelief at the heart of the of of the Thomas story is disbelief in the crucifixion more than in the resurrection. It was the it was the scandal of the crucifixion which made the resurrection impossible to believe. That's another point. The point is here he comes and he shows his hands and his his side, and he says, uh, "Peace be with you." And they saw that it was the Lord, and he said to them again, "Peace be with you." And then he said. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So what is the resurrection? This sums up the resurrection. The resurrection is the experience that suddenly I am impelled to do what he did. I have been sent. Uh, My life is no longer my own. He lives in me. Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. What the Father sent me to do, I send you to do. That is the experience of the resurrection. The experience of the resurrection is twofold. The first part is now the Christic impulse is in me, and I am I, and I feel compelled to do what He did. And then He says, after this, He breathed on them and He said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. For whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven; and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained." Now, the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the Paraclete. The paraclete is the defender of victims. How do we defend victims? Well, Urban II had a way of defending them, which is you go and slaughter the victimizer. And we know where that leads. So, how does the paraclete defend the victim? He forgives the victimizer. He makes possible the experience of forgiveness. He breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit, and he says, for, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, those you retain, they are retained. We tend to read this again, because we read things from a sacrificial point of view. We tend to read this as a, as a stern God who says, you get to go out there and decide who's going to go to hell and who's not. See, you have the power to usher them into the kingdom or to condemn them to hell or some such thing as that. I don't think that's in it at all. When Jesus says, if you, if you forgive them, their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't they, don't, they don't. I think he's saying to them, you better get started. There's lots of sins out there to forgive them, and unless they experience forgiveness, they won't be forgiven. And, you, and go forgive them. I think the idea of if, if you retain their sins, they will be retained is, an, is a kind of ominous threat to the disciples. You better watch out. You see, if you don't forgive them, they won't experience forgiveness. And then parenthetically, if they don't experience forgiveness at your hands, they will generate those rituals by which they can feel expiated, which is to say the kind of thing that happened at the Church of the Sepulchre in 1853 and the kind of thing that's happening all over the planet Earth right now. So you better get on with this business of forgiveness. It's not some pious little condescending thing where you say, oh, well, you're, you're okay, I'm not going to hold it against you. It's something tremendously dynamic, and it's hard to pull off. People charge $100 an hour for months on end, you know, and it doesn't come, sometimes, it, often, it doesn't come about. It's not so, It's not that easy to convey that experience. And, and so the rest of this story, in a minute this story, is going to take up the question of how to convey, how to communicate the experience of uh, forgiveness. But I think it's tremendous that it's all summed up with that. And a, a number of people have noticed the the salience of forgiveness in the resurrection story particularly in John one of whom is Rowan Williams who wrote this there is no hope of understanding the resurrection outside the process of renewing humanity and forgiveness we are all agreed that the empty tomb proves nothing it means a lot but proves nothing and then he goes on to say we need to add that no amount of apparitions however well authenticated would mean anything either apart from the testimony of forgiven lives communicating forgiveness. Forgiven lives communicating forgiveness. We have to be forgiven in order to be able to communicate forgiveness. The resurrection was an experience of forgiveness. The disciples had all abandoned Jesus. They had all become complicit with his murderers. The fact that the resurrection was happening to them was in large part an experience of forgiveness for them. So the testimony of forgiven lives communicating Forgiveness, notice the verb, communicating forgiveness, or you could say making forgiveness a, a authentic experience. And I think that is tremendously important both spiritually and anthropologically in terms of the individual spiritual life and in terms of the anthropological dilemma that we've been talking about. Edward Skilbeck, the famous Catholic theologian, said, In the theology of the New Testament, there is a recognizable association of resurrection with forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is a gracious Easter gift. After their Easter experiences, the disciples preach forgiveness of sins. On a more personal level, H.J. Richards puts it this way, Every time I know the forgiveness of others or know that others are forgiven, I know that life has overcome death. Okay, now, the fourth evangelist speaks of only one sin, the sin of disbelief. So, how do we forgive that sin? How do we forgive the sin of disbelief? As William Hubbin put it in summarizing Soren Kierkegaard's Christian existentialism, quote, the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. To forgive the sin of disbelief, we have to somehow put skepticism and doubt in the service of faith. The kind of skepticism and doubt that, that uh, is born of the, in, in the Western experience is a product of the biblical revelation." The biblical revelation is demythologizing. It gives rise to skepticism and doubt. It is a product of the biblical revelation. It is not an enemy of it, and it and it, and it 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 has its proper place as a as in an, in alliance with faith. And I think to bring that alliance about uh, is part of what is required in order to forgive, so to speak, uh, the sin of disbelief to discover within the Christian horizon itself a critical faculty that is infinitely more acute and epistemologically powerful than the comparatively innocuous forms of it that are based on reason and empiricism. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. It is not for us to prophesy the day, though the day will surely come, when men will once more be called so to utter the word of God that the world will be changed and renewed by it it will be a new language however perhaps quite non-religious language but liberating and redeeming as was Jesus' language and it will shock people and yet overcome them by its power and here's what uh, John Sullivan said about that he's a He was a French uh, priest and novelist. He said, I would so like to believe that the childhood of Christendom is over, that it is breaking away from ideology and legalism, no longer emphasizing concept, the Western representation of things, tearing down its doctrinal scaffolding, or at least keeping it at a distance, something for specialists, and becoming at once more feeble and more strong more apt to express itself in terms of our common anthropological foundation. The German theologian Johann Baptist Metz agreed that the idiom in which the gospel could most powerfully be articulated in our time was the anthropological one. It was an idiom in which Metz said, the good news of the gospel, true to its paradoxical nature, will liberate us from the very trap that the modern world uh, thinks is liberation itself. Metz puts it this way, it is not a liberation from our state of oppression but from the untransformed praxis of our own wishes and desires. It frees us not from our guilt but from our innocence or rather from the delusion of innocence. If the opposite of sin is not virtue but faith, the barrier to faith is the claim to innocence. Innocence is just another form of unforgivenness. The difference between the experience of being innocent and the experience of being forgiven is immense. Paul said, should I sin so that grace may abound? And therein lies the a difference I think between the experience of innocence and the experience of forgiveness first of all the experience of innocence is a lie the claim of innocence is a lie or a, or a delusion but the experience of forgiveness is solid and and uh, and uh, scrutable one can one can learn about it innocence is very fragile the claim of innocence is very fragile because it won't stand scrutiny But the experience of forgiveness is something much stronger than that. And resurrection is the experience of forgiveness, among other things. And so there's a little story at the very end in the epilogue in John's Gospel. Chapter 21 is appended to the Gospel later. But it's a tremendous, I think, story of forgiveness. It begins this way. Later on, Jesus showed himself to the disciples. It was by the Sea of Tiberias. And Simon Peter was there and Thomas the Twin and a number of other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they replied, we will come with you. And they went and got into the boat and caught nothing and it was night. So we're back to this place where, it's, where Jesus is gone, it's dark, they catch nothing, it's, it's, uh, it's fruitless and it's dark. The next verse says, it was light by now and there stood Jesus on the shore. The disciples did not recognize him. Same story. He's unrecognizable. Jesus called out to them, "Have you caught anything, friends?" And this word "friends" really means boys. It's or lads. Or uh, it's a very it's affectionate term in Greek, uh, m- meaning often used for young boys. Uh, so, it's, but it's 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 very affectionate and uh, intimate. They answered "No, we haven't caught anything." He says, "Well, throw your net in on the starboard side," and they do. And uh, it, they catch a great number of fish, 153 to be exact. And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I think he probably recognizes that it is the Lord because of this tone of affection in the in the call from the shore. And as soon as Simon Peter learns it's the Lord, he jumps into, he wraps his cloaks around him, he jumps into the water, he swims ashore, the rest of them come ashore on the boat. Typical of Peter. Typical of Peter's personality. As soon as they came ashore, they saw that there was some bread there, a charcoal fire with fish cooking on it. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you have caught and so on. And Simon Peter dragged them up and there were 153. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples was bold enough to ask, Who are you? They knew quite well it was the Lord. Now, I will ask you to ponder that sentence. That is, I think, a tremendously important sentence. None of the disciples was bold enough to ask, Who are you? They knew quite well it was the Lord. If they knew quite well it was the Lord, why was the question, Who are you? on the tip of their tongue? How well did they know it was the Lord? And why didn't they ask if it was the Lord? You see, I think there is more in that sentence. There's more of the real truth of the the resurrection in that sentence than in almost any sentence in the New Testament. They knew it was the Lord. And I, for one, am sure that they were right. But on the tip of their tongue was this question, who are you? And that's got to be there too because the first experience of the resurrection as I said Jesus said as the Father sent me so I send you the first experience of the resurrection is I I now He is my Lord He is my model I must do with my life what He did I must be about that business that's the experience of the resurrection that is the Christ coming alive inside the believer the second experience of the resurrection is I must forgive I must be about the business of forgiving because that is the summation of his life was forgiveness of sins. All the travesties of history are created by unforgiven people. We must forgive one another. We must find ways of forgiving one another. And the third experience of the resurrection is I see Christ in the other. In a palpable way, a convincing way, not in the other that is good necessarily or morally upright, but in the other all over the place. The more I can see Christ in, the, the, more, the, the more questionable the outer array of the personality is in whom I can see Christ at the core, the better my vision. The more I'm seeing things in the light of the resurrection. None of the disciples was bold enough to say, who are you? They knew quite well it was the Lord. Tremendous. And that, I think, is the essence of the resurrection. And there's only one thing left to rehearse, and that is how to forgive people. After the meal, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now Simon Peter is all of us. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times, but he represents all of the disciples' Fled, and all of us flee. We are all deniers and betrayers, and Simon Peter represents us all. After the meal, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, Look after my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was upset and said, Why do you keep asking me this? You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. You see, the, the, the Roman church has done a marvelous thing. It has changed the sacrament uh, from, from the sacrament of penance to the sacrament of reconciliation. It now refers to the sacrament recognizing that what's really involved is reconciliation. Now, Peter had denied him three times. So we have a three-step process which works Peter back into a reconciliation. But it's even more interesting in that because the verb Jesus uses when he asks this question is the verb form of agape, the specific kind of Christian love. Agape is a kind of ungrasping, selfless love that has that Christians later came to think of as specifically Christian love, and it's in Agape is in Paul very strongly. So Jesus, and I'm going to anglicize this, you know. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me, if I may to? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Philio is another, is a word for love, but it is It's human love in the sense of friendship. It's putting your arm around the shoulders. And it's being uh, comrades in that kind of very earthy sense, which is so characteristic of Peter. And then Jesus says, second time, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. And then the next time, and, and all of us are ready now. See, Peter's finally going to see the light. And the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you feel he owe me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I feel he owe you. It's unbelievable. Do you see what forgiveness is? Jesus Expresses it in Peter's terms. Okay. I accept that. It's unbelievable. It's a story of how to forgive people. Is to is to, to awaken that love at whatever level it can be awakened. And then you have the touching story referring to Peter's death. So finally we get uh, I tell you most solemnly from Jesus to Peter, I tell you most solemnly when you were young you put on your own belt walked where you liked when you grow old you will stretch out your hand; someone else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. Which was a prediction of Peter's path, Peter's own crucifixion. But it's a, I think also a story about uh, what christian conversion means it means that you become that you discover that lo- christ is living in you and living in other people and you realize your life is not really your own and it becomes a very exciting life at that point as long as it's your own and you're trying you know you're making it happen uh then it, it's a kind of push and shove and so on but once it's you realize it's not your own and something else is going on it becomes a very interesting Process and it's like at that point you lift up your arm, somebody else puts the belt around you and takes you where you would rather not go. That is to say, like happiness is as as somebody said, I think it was I forget who said this. Somebody who said happiness is not getting your own way. That's true. Okay, very quickly a summarizing. In the Gospel of John there are two charcoal fires one at the high priest's house around which the servants and Peter gather to ward off the cold night and the one on the beach with Jesus cooking breakfast and extending to his disciples and friends the generosity of a meal and the experience of forgiveness and an invitation to discover that one's life does not belong to oneself alone. In... The Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, "I have come to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were blazing already." T. S. Eliot in Little Gidding said, "We will be consumed by either fire or fire." And I think the two fires we're likely to be consumed by are the two fires that are kindled from the two, from the embers of the two charcoal fires in the Gospel of John, the sacrificial fires that are that are kindled in that in that little charcoal fire at the high priest's house. They are lying in a a dormant and latent state there, but they could very easily, as we saw in these stories we talked about today, be rekindled and become a conflagration, a sacrificial conflagration. Or the fire of the spirit of reconciliation and forgiveness, which is the spirit of the resurrection, which was there in the little charcoal fire over which Jesus was cooking the fish. One is the fire of the apocalypse and the other is the fire of the kingdom come. What I've tried to do is highlight the anthropological singularity of the gospel in order to awaken anew to its sweeping historical and cultural significance. In the fall, I want to take up the same project from a slightly different angle and to highlight the gospel's radical and distinctive understanding of the self in order to underscore its psychological significance and the relevance of Christianity's liturgical and sacramental traditions. We've now termed this long project, which will go on as far as I'm concerned for years, uh, Keeping Faith and Breaking Ground. And part one was the Gospel of John. And part two will be this thing in the fall, which at the moment we're calling uh, uh, Let This Mind Be in You. This concludes Reflections on the Gospel of John. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.